Hi, everybody. It's Liz and Shana. Morning. We are the Birth Nurses Podcast, and today we're going to talk about seven tips to help avoid early intervention. We're all about trying to avoid early intervention, right? Yeah. We keep coming back to this, don't we? Yeah. The sooner you get to the hospital, the sooner you're going to have interventions done to you. As as simple as getting monitors put on your belly. Yeah. That's an intervention. I agree. We're so, expected as labor and delivery nurses to get a fetal rhythm strip. Mm-hmm. We call that an NST or at least fetal heart tones. Right, the tracing. Uh, a tracing. You'll hear all that vernacular mm-hmm. um, to establish fetal well-being. Right. And it sounds like, oh, that should be absolutely what I should be doing. But remember, when you're at home and when you're walking around the world pregnant, we don't have any of that information. Right. And of course, evidence shows that prolonged extensive fetal monitoring has not been shown to improve maternal fetal outcomes. Welcome to the Birth Nurses Podcast. I'm Shana Brickner from Preparented, and I'm joined by my co-host Liz Baker-Wade from Birth and Beyond in Santa Monica. We are the Birth Nurses. In this podcast, we talk about birth and nursing practice and labor and delivery, and in a broader sense, the whole world of nursing too. From two women who have been on both sides of the birthing bed, we've got some things to talk about that will enhance your understanding of birth. Whether you're a first-time pregnant parent, a parent to one or more babies, or a professional in the birth world, this podcast is for you. Join me and Liz and special guests as we share and learn from each other here on the Birth Nurses Podcast. It's surprising to a lot of people. Like, wow, all this technology, you would think it's going to help and, in, you know, increase my chance to have a low intervention birth right. and a smooth vaginal delivery. But right. actually, the more we see, the more we react. Why is that? To what we see. Because we're scared. Right. And, <laughs> liability. and liability. We have to be able to defend what we do yep. based on what we see, mm-hmm. which, of course, then increases early rupture of membranes, internal monitors, increasing the infection rate, and of course, ultimately, surgical birth. Yeah. So it is sort of a big circle. We're talking about well women, low risk women, Mm -hmm. women who are not considered high risk by any standards, American College of Obstetricians, ACOG, midwifery, labor nurses, obstetricians. This is a well woman who should not require early intervention. Yeah. First, I want to talk about what interventions are we talking about in this episode? Right. Because they can seem really benign or very invasive. Right. I'd say like the, yeah, the most benign or like least invasive intervention that we typically do in the hospital is monitoring. So you put the monitors on your belly, checking your contractions, checking the baby's heart rate. Another intervention is starting your IV. Yeah. Yeah. I've come to waiting a while. I love that. I know. I don't need it right away. We don't. And what the narrative that we've gotten really comfortable saying is, well, we want an IV place just in case of an emergency. Right. Which, as a nurse, there's nothing worse than screwing around with an IV when I have a baby who's taken a dive in the fetal heart rate. And now I'm scrambling to get my patient to the operating room, but she doesn't have an IV. But really, when we can notice the fetal heart rate tracing is questionable we can pop in an IV most mm-hmm. of the time. 
Mm -hmm. And we try to put IVs in places that are comfortable, like between the wrist and the elbow, not in what we call the antecubital space. The middle of your elbow. The middle of your elbow, right. And in an emergency, it's going there. Right. That's the fastest, biggest vein that we can access. But yeah, forearm is the best place. So nowadays, when you get to the hospital, there is a zillion questions to ask. Mm -hmm. And we have what we call the green dots in what we have in <laughs> my hospital and in most what I think hospital systems around Los Angeles is epic. So we have a lot of questions to ask and mm-hmm. a lot of information to gather. So I don't rush to put the IV in. Sometimes I if it. I am comfortable with the fetal heart rate tracing and I get what I need, the first thing I ask is, do you want intermittent fetal heart rate monitoring? Because we could take those off too. Yes. So we have monitoring, IV, next intervention, that's very common. I guess associated with the IV is fluids going in your IV. And then even position changes, that's an intervention. The nurse coming in, having you change positions um, based on the fetal heart rate tracing. Other interventions can include medication that we're giving, Um, oxygen. Right. On your face in a mask um, and rupturing your membrane. So amniotomy or AROM, artificial rupture of membranes by the doctor. Mm -hmm. There is a school of thought by certain obstetricians that um, that is considered active management based on the Dublin model that was long time ago, very, very specific about rupturing the bag of water after the active phase have begun with labor support. And we sort of use that willy-nilly to um, sort of impose that on Mm. a lot of people. I'm going to come in and rupture her. Right. Like, like no one's allowed to have their membranes just break on their own. It's against the law. I was just talking to someone over Instagram about this, actually. She saw her, she's a doula, and she saw her very first N-call birth, where the baby's ah, born in, in the, the membrane. In the so membrane. Yeah. very interesting. It's supposed to be very mystical. In the amniotic sac. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's fascinating. I've never seen one. Mm-hmm. And she was like, what? I'm like, yeah. In my seven years of experience, I've never seen an N-call birth because either the waters break spontaneously or the doctor breaks the bag of water. Yeah. Yeah. So, so sometimes you get your whole career. Right. It'd be a decade or three decades and never see one. Yeah. I've seen several. That's awesome. I love but that. oftentimes it's with a precipitous birth, a birth mm-hmm. that's going really fast. Goes really fast. Okay. So yeah. all those interventions, what else? Epidural. Yeah. Getting an epidural. That could be in your medication category. Mm-hmm. Um Getting internal monitors placed. Right. So an IUPC, intrauterine pressure catheter, or an FSE, the fetal scalp electrode, to check the baby's heart rate via the scalp. Um, or an amnio infusion. Right. There's an intervention where mm-hmm. we're putting water back into your uterus via the IUPC, the pressure catheter. Um, to give baby a little extra cushion, hopefully prevent some D cells that are happening recurrently. So D cells, yeah, decelerations in the fetal heart rate, specifically caused by compression of the umbilical cord 
from decreased amniotic fluid. Now, here's the irony of all this. <laughs> right? The irony is that we're seeing all this on the fetal monitor strip. Right. And because... <laughs> Somebody wanted their patient's membranes ruptured. Right. So we artificially rupture the membranes and then up doing an amnio infusion to put <laughs> fluid back because what we did was let out all the fluid right. that was supposed to be there to cushion the fetal umbilical cord. Oh my goodness. Which I always sit there and I just shake my head, especially when certain OBs will break the amniotic sac and then literally elevate the presenting part, which is the fetal head, to allow mm. more fluid out. And I usually say out loud, could you just leave some fluid in there for me, please? Right. We need a little bit of fluid. That baby needs some It's fluid. like, why are you letting it all? You broke the bag of water. You accomplished what you think you needed to accomplish. Right. But could you please just not elevate the head so mm. that all the water comes out? Because right. you know it's going to happen now. Yeah. Now I'm going to need to intervene. Right. And I have to say, <laughs> more and more over the years, I have had to do that intervention of placing an internal uterine pressure catheter and putting fluid back in. Now- most of the time, it works really well. However, what have I done, really? Yeah. I've broken the barrier mm-hmm. that decreases the possibility for infection. Right. And I've placed a conduit. It's like all the bacteria. Oh, looky. Right. I have a catheter now to grab onto mm-hmm. and go right up into the... So, <laughs> right? So mm-hmm. what have I accomplished, really? Right. What Speed up labor by a couple of hours? Yeah, yeah, I know. Well, it speeds up labor. I'm like... What, does what my cost? patient have a very important lunch meeting today? And what, like, <laughs> where's she going? Or hot date tonight? Right, right, exactly. <laughs> so, so three hours or... Um, so I never... I, I do really appreciate the obstetricians that... It's like, she's six. Oh, have somebody break her water immediately. They're like, oh, okay, that's great. Mm-hmm. Fine. Mm-hmm. And when it breaks and breaks. And if it doesn't... And it's holding up dilation. Sure. And we're in a situation, increasing blood pressure, whatever, that we are motivated to move labor forward, breaking of the bag of water is absolutely appropriate. And sometimes to treat naughty fetal heart rate tracings, (laughs) we need to break the bag of water to to place monitors and figure out what's going on. So I'm completely on board where there's evidence Mm -hmm. that it's necessary I'm all in. But really, for no reason at all? Yeah. Yeah. It's bothersome. Yeah. Yeah. And then the ultimate intervention, that's the most invasive, I would say, is surgical birth or a cesarean section, which thankfully we have this technology, this invention um, for those emergency cases that absolutely we need to save mom's life, baby's life by doing a surgical birth. Mm -hmm. But... Yeah. At what point did we kind of cause all of this to happen right. with the interventions that and we're expanding doing. the reasons around mm-hmm. surgical birth? Yeah, large for gestational age. You know, with a ten percent margin of error mm-hmm. in a lot of ultrasounds. Yep, that's a pretty high risk procedure for a maybe. Mm-hmm. For a maybe. Yeah, I like to tell people that if you could convince yourself to just let it ride and then negotiate it out with your obstetrician or midwife. Like, okay, you think this baby's huge. Okay. I've had a perinatologist tell me it's huge, Mm -hmm. but that's kind of how we roll in our family. So how about letting me labor? Yeah. Let me have a spontaneous labor, Mm -hmm. decreasing 
Not, yeah, not an induced labor. Not induced labor, but let me have a spontaneous labor. And then if a certain amount of hours go by that it's clear that this isn't moving forward, that means I'm not making cervical progression, Mm -hmm. then we'll re-talk about going to the operating room. But I'd like to go into labor and see maybe, you know, the planets will align and this baby will rotate and my pelvis and my baby will accommodate each other and voila. Because you were made for this and babies are squishy. And their heads aren't molded. Their skull isn't like fused together yet. They have yeah. these squishy heads that mold. And um, that's when a baby comes out with a cone head usually. Yes, the but- five bony plates of the fetal skull move and mold because that's the mm-hmm. way the you know design committee set it up. Right. <laughs> and we know that a fused head can be problematic because the brain grows so fast in that first year of life that it could outgrow the skull. But... It does what it's supposed to do. Yeah, it does sort of put it in the patient's head, the mom's head. I just got told I have a baby's, you know, a large baby head. I'm like, why even tell somebody that at 33 weeks? Then you're terrified. Then you're like thinking of all the possibilities. Oh, the baby's going to, you know, shoulder dystocia. Baby's shoulders are going to get stuck. Right. Or I'm going to have a huge tear. Yeah. Why plant that seed? Don't plant the seed. You have a large abdominal girth at 32 weeks. Oh, gosh. It's like, well, I got two months to go. Yeah. So how about let's have that conversation two months from now so mm-hmm. I don't ruminate about this. Yeah. And my cortisol levels are you know off the charts. Know. So again, I often feel like that information is not productive and that it is planting a little sort of insidious yep. or not so insidious seed yep. for I'm going to want to intervene on your labor yeah. later on. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Did we yeah, talk about all the interventions? Like I think we Should... talked about most of them. Okay. Yeah. Let's get into our seven tips to decrease your intervention or have a low intervention hospital birth. Yeah. That's our specialty, hospital birth. Yeah. So number one, I think it all has to do with your mindset, just yeah. like what you were talking about. If a seed was planted in your head mm-hmm. that you can't do it, that you can't wait as long as possible to go to the hospital, that you have to accept every intervention that's offered to you, then you're going to, that's the path you're going to go on. It has to do with your mindset. Yeah. If you want a low intervention birth, which could ultimately lead you to an unmedicated birth, then you need to set your mind to it. You need to be determined and plan it out in advance. I think it's appropriate and fair to ask your obstetrician, could you do me this favor and not bring up all the concerns you have with size early on in my second and third trimester? I don't need to know at 32 weeks that you think I have a large fetal head or a large abdominal girth, unless, of course, this is going to require surgical intervention or you think my baby has hydrocephaly or Mm. some kind of like this is this is problematic. Right. I don't need to know that because that's not going to help my mindset at all. We could revisit that conversation much later. I love that too. Yeah. Just please, not necessary. It's not going to help my mindset and it's not productive for me to ruminate about this. Perfect. Easy. Easy. Okay. Number two, wait for spontaneous labor to begin. Please. It seems like for the nurses, it seems like a duh. Yeah. But for the pregnant person who's never done this before and then they hear from 
their doctor or maybe their friend or their sister or cousin, oh, yeah, they're going to say that you can be induced at 39 weeks. You should do it because then you won't have to be pregnant for your last couple weeks of pregnancy. Why not be induced? But when you go through an induction, first of all, that can take anywhere from one to three days based on the favorability of your cervix. Right. Um, Soft and mushy or long, thick and closed. And then you're signing up for all the interventions. Right. Essentially. Right. When you say, I'm going to the hospital for an induction, you're... (laughs) To be so dramatic, but you're signing your life away. Like, okay, I'm for those three days. Anyway. For those three you're days, mine. right? <laughs> you're you're signing your life away to to get monitored, to have your IV, to get medication, to probably get an epidural. Because I like to think of it like when you wait for spontaneous labor for to begin on its own, it's kind of like you're on a roller coaster. And your body's like, okay, let's ramp up a little bit, a little bit, a little bit more. Okay, we're getting to that top of that roller coaster. And then we're going to push and go down the roller coaster. That's the pushing stage. Mm -hmm. When you're getting induced, that easy ramp up to the intense part of labor Mm -hmm. is expedited. You're going from zero to 100 really fast. And that's not to say that precipitous birth doesn't happen. We have patients that come in. We call them stop and drops, which I always think it's really funny. (laughs) They come in. I've been in labor for three hours and they are screaming. We barely get her pants off. Well, not baby. I'm like, okay, beautiful. (laughs) You You don't see the beauty of it at that moment. Right. Afterwards. Yeah. Terrified. (laughs) But yeah, you're right. The induction takes out the normal physiologic ramping up yes. and communicating of your hormones yes. to give what I think is a better physiologic labor, yeah, which is basically how we are made, created, mm-hmm. evolved, whatever anybody wants to call it. Don't <laughs> let anybody write in and get hysterical. I cover all my bases. <laughs> you did a good job with Thank that. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I completely mm-hmm. agree. And there are still... So many people who just say, well, I'm going to be induced because we agreed. And then I feel compelled to say, so you understand, you could be here for two or three days. Mm-hmm. Really? What? And we're so worried about things like hemostasis and blood clots. And it's like, you're going to be here predominantly in this room, predominantly in that bed or in that rocking chair or pacing around a small space. Mm-hmm. For what could be 24, 48, or 72 hours. And that's just in labor and delivery. Right. Not to mention your postpartum stay. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now, okay, I'm going to play devil's advocate for a Mm -hmm. little bit. What about when you go past your due date? Should you still wait for spontaneous labor to begin? What if you're 41 weeks? What what happens then? That is a very variable thing amongst Mm -hmm. obstetricians in my community. And I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that uh, most of the obstetric nurses that I know, and I know quite a few now who have spread out all over the country, Oregon, Washington, Wisconsin, New York City, Jersey, um, Atlanta, Texas, Texas. We've had a lot of travelers who have come to talk about how they do things in their states and in their communities Mm -hmm. because there's no hard and fast rule. There's no real following of evidence 
every obstetrician gets to do whatever they want. So there's going to be a spectrum of obstetricians and midwives who are going to allow, and I'm putting quotes in the air because I just find that so matriarchal, patriarchal word. I'm going to allow you to be 41 weeks pregnant. Oh, thanks so much. Thank you so much for allowing me to have the physiologic pregnancy and labor that I want to have. Right. (laughs) And then there's the obstetricians who are completely cool with it, which I love. It's like, Mm -hmm. all right, when you're 41 weeks and a couple of days, let's have a conversation. Mm -hmm. Now, true to be responsible nurses, Shana and I have to talk about meconium aspiration. And the closer you creep towards 40 two plus weeks, 43 and 44, the higher the rate of meconium, which is babies passing stool into the amniotic sac, which can increase meconium aspiration. That is a fact. That is in evidence. So we're just talking about due date plus a week. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm all in. Yeah. But we know both of us me twice and Shana once, uh, twice, three times, right? <laughs> we know that it looks like the golden brass, you know, the brass ring. It's like somebody's telling me I don't have to wake up pregnant in the next couple of days. Right. I am in. I am oh, so it's over such it. such a temptation. It's like, such wait, a temptation. You're telling me I can get my baby out sooner. I don't have to wait. Right. I'll know when baby's birthday is going to be. Right. I had a repeat elective cesarean section. I had a section with my first child, my boy. And then um, as a surrogate, I delivered a couple of weeks early in my second pregnancy because I had hypertension the first time around. So we circumvented all of that shenanigans by doing that. But I do know at the end, yeah, it was like, like okay. Hun is, you know, <laughs> December 2nd coming around or right. whatever. Had it been my own, I just want to throw this out there. I would have absolutely wanted to try a VBAC. Wow. A TOLAC, trial of labor after C-section. But um, yeah, induction. Mm-hmm. Let's keep taking a hard look at it. Yeah. Do your research. Talk to labor nurses. Talk to friends. Ask, ask, ask. Mm-hmm. Take a birth class. Yes. And if your obstetrician is anti-birth class or disparaging towards birth classes, kind of giving that undercurrent of, oh, it's just confusing. I'm still hearing that, especially amongst younger obstetricians, and it's mm. really bothersome. Yeah. And I would question that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm Elizabeth Baker-Wade. I am a labor and delivery nurse, registered nurse, birth educator, and podcaster. My birth education classes are concentrated on how to have a better hospital birth and high-risk pregnancy. What's high-risk? What does that mean? High-risk are moms who are experiencing histories of chronic hypertension, pregnancy-induced hypertension, we call that preeclampsia, insulin-dependent diabetes, infertility, and other comorbidities in their pregnancy which bumped them into a higher risk category. Mm. Why do you like to teach about high risk pregnancies? Because there's gonna be more interventions often in the high risk mom. 
and getting familiar with the vernacular and understanding the risk benefit of these interventions and why your obstetrician is going to bring them up and getting prepared for what's going to happen in the hospital, I think can really greatly reduce fear and anxiety. And a lot of moms out there have comorbidities these days. We need to help them out on their way. Making peace with intervention when necessary helps for a better, smoother labor and delivery, I think. How can someone sign up for your class? They can go to birthandbeyond.net. You can email me at liz at birthandbeyond.net. I will respond within 24 hours. All my schedules, fees, and times are on my website. I also have a consultation membership and a text me anything membership for a month at a time where I will answer as many texts as you need for questions that come up out of the blue. Lots of texts come after the appointment, right? <laughs> yep. <laughs> I just had an appointment with my LB and I don't understand. Yeah. <laughs> right. I'm at birthandbeyond.net. Okay, tip number three, mm-hmm. stay at home as long as possible. Oh, yes. Because you'll be in your the comfort of your own home. Mm-hmm. You'll have your own shower, your own bathroom, your own bed. Oh, yeah. Your pets around you to, to pet your dog, pet mm-hmm. your cat, whatever is going to be calming to you. And again, we're not monitoring you. If you wait at home, if you're at home, your nurse isn't there. Your doctor right. isn't there. Once you get to the hospital, we're starting all of these interventions. So water, positions, yeah, postures. You can do anything you want at home. Um, that leads us to tip number four. Practice your pain management techniques. Yeah. There are so many, so many different types of massage and uh, counter pressure, hip squeezes, reflexology, acupuncture, yeah. aromatherapy, yeah. yeah, heat therapy, getting a hot pack, putting it on your back, tens units, mm-hmm. being in the shower, a bath, anything that will help you relax and um, manage your pain. When you practice that before you're actually going through labor then it's easier to recall that that muscle memory of, okay, this is what I do to to bring me pain relief. This is what I do to, to bring on relaxation so that my endorphins can kick in so that, um, you know, you're not tensing up and increasing your sensation of pain. Yeah. I like to have all of my students do circuit labor that I've created for them. And you can Google circuit labor. There's all kinds of birth educators, not just me. Um, And it's like, everyone says, when do you want me to start this, Liz? And I'm like, today. Uh (laughs) We're doing it now. And every day I want you to do, this is, you know, about a 40-minute cycle of birth ball and forward-leaning positions and cat-cows and then lunges, then have a drink and pee. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, it can only help to empty your bladder, as you know pregnant moms out there. Um, and, uh, 
every day. So you're in the groove, you're in the mindset. It is not foreign. You're not scrambling for your piece of paper. Okay, what did Liz say to do during uh, the early labor? Mm -hmm. And I am very much a proponent of ignoring the early latent phase. Now, I know that in old Lamas, we used to tell people, when I say old, maybe I'm dating myself, I'm talking 30 years, maybe plus, you know, sit with every contraction, absorb every contraction, right? <laughs> have a relationship with every contraction. I'm like, oh, you know, <laughs> I don't want to have that much of a relationship with all of my early labor. Right, right. So for me, I have been talking to my students about garden, take a walk, yeah. cook. Go about your day. Go as about normal. your day. Yeah. Like, okay, I'm having gnarly period cramping. I've done this before. Mm-hmm. I have a relationship with these cramps. I'm moving on yep. because I have some flowers to plant. Yeah. I want you to move through them. I always say, your contractions will come and find you. Yes. And they will make you stop and take pause finally. And that's when you'll really know, like, yeah. oh, active labor is oh. coming because I can't ignore this anymore. I have to I hold my breath or grab onto the wall yeah. Yeah. or I'm holding. It's like, OK, now I have to really kick into employing mm-hmm. and beckoning all that circuit labor. I need to get down on my hands and knees. I need yes. to breathe. I need a bath. I need to get my birth ball in the shower, lean against those tiles and have that water come down on me. Yeah. And I think it helps to make the time pass if you're not just completely hyper-focused on every contraction in the beginning. 100% agree. Yeah. All right. Tip number five. Mm-hmm. Be on the same page as your partner. Oh, this is a big one for me. Yes. Yeah. You ultimately, you have agency over your body Mm -hmm. in labor. Once you get to the hospital, like you are making these decisions. But if if for some reason you cannot make these decisions, your partner needs to know what the plan was. So this could manifest itself in making a birth plan or at least writing it out or talking with your partner so that you are both on the same page with what the plan is. Doesn't mean you're giving your, your nurse a five page birth plan, but. Oh, I get those. uh, Yes. (laughs) But I'd say, keep it concise. If you do write out a birth plan, one page or less of, I prefer this over this. Birth preferences. We love it. Birth preferences, your overall birth wish. I am wishing for a vaginal delivery with low interventions. Mm -hmm. And then you can have a safe word with your partner. If you know, you got to the hospital and you, you did all the first four tips, you practiced, you stayed at home as long as possible. Spontaneous labor began. You had your mindset in the right place. And then you're finally at the hospital and you're like, you know what? I did a really good job. Yeah. And, and I'm ready for an epidural and and your partner's not forcing you to say it. But you, you said. But you said you didn't want to. No matter I, what, I shouldn't right. let you. It's and like, he calls. It was like, no, what's your safe word? Pineapple juice or whatever. Oh, you know what? It's so funny that you should say that because <laughs> I just had a overwhelming urge to start laughing like giggling in church right now. And now I'm going to be hysterical because you said pineapple. <laughs> and all I kept thinking was Amy Schumer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a train wreck. Pineapple. <laughs> I hope anybody out there listening to this podcast can appreciate what I'm talking about. Oh my God. Every time someone says something like safe word, <laughs> that's yeah, a safe I think word. Of. So funny. Okay. 
let's talk a little bit about, yeah. you know, I have a, I've had an opportunity to observe probably a few thousand now, but hundreds and hundreds say, and you hundreds should definitely of, say a thousand or more or more. I think yeah. I've been involved in about 3,500 births Amazing. in 32 years. So I can, I can safely say that I have witnessed the interesting relationship dynamic of a lot of people. Oh my gosh, tell us more. And this sometimes you walk into a room and it just is all right there. Mm-hmm. The vibe, the energy between the couple, between the couple and his or her parents, the friends. Now we, the last couple of years, have not had a lot of people in our labor and delivery rooms. Right. I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing in certain cases, but it's really important to take a temperature of the relationship yeah. Especially when you get pregnant. Is your partner ambivalent about the pregnancy? Are there fears that you haven't had conversations about? Are there obstacles in the relationship that need to be addressed before the baby comes? Uh, have you given clear boundaries and wishes to your respective families about calls and visits yep. to the hospital? Um, is your partner on board with your birth preferences and that they can support you? And is your partner honest about how they can support your labor? Yeah. Because I would rather hear, look, you know, I'm just not that kind of person. I, I, you get, know, queasy. I'm not, I get queasy. Yeah. I'm not comfortable. You know, you're not a massage kind of person. So I don't know. You may consider a doula. Sure. Because a doula can be that person who can support your partner, or if you happen to be a, a single pregnant person, mm-hmm. support you or say, all right, I'm here for you. And he or she is going to do whatever she can do or wants to do to be comfortable in this situation. Mm-hmm. The doula is not there to necessarily fix a relationship, right. but they are there to support however your dynamic is in the period of time that you're having a baby. Yep, And I often get concerned when women tell me um, my doula only is coming when I'm in active labor. Like, oh, I am here to missing, tell you, my friends. They're missing the whole first part of the roller coaster. Yes, that has been interesting for me to observe that over the years. Now, I get it. Mm-hmm. Prodromal latent phase, that's the early hours of labor, can be very long mm-hmm. and very hard and exhausting, even though you're not, and I'm putting quotes in the air again, in labor. We call that in active labor. Mm -hmm. But you have to remember, our friends out there, to have a clear, concise conversation with the doula that you are hiring to be with you during this huge event that she's going to be there with you when you need her. Right. And if that's not the doula for you, then move on. Yep. Interview somebody else. And I do get it. Doulas who often end up coming really, really early, they bring all of their stuff to labor and delivery. And they're, you know, I love these rooms. The doulas make everything smell really good. And there's massage oils out and diffusers. And I'm like, oh, I just love being. (laughs) It's very calm and everything's great. But then they come and they find a sleeping mom. Mm Mm-hmm. 
and a sleeping dad. I'm like, why am I here? I could be sleeping. Right. Because she's going to need me later. But there's only one bed in labor and delivery. Right. And yeah. now the doula is sitting in a chair for hours while their thing's getting going. So really defining and understanding when labor starts and what you need, you may need a doula to be with you emotionally yes. in the early hours of labor and not just for physical discomfort. Mm -hmm. And that doula is out there. There's plenty of those doulas who are on board with if you need me to sit in a chair and read while you're going through early labor, then that's what I'm going to do. Mm -hmm. So be clear about what you need and make sure you have that conversation with your doula so that everybody understands. Yeah. Yeah. Love that. Yeah. Kind of, yeah, shooting off of that tip, be on the same page as your partner. You have permission to change your mind. Agency. Yes. Love you it. have that flexibility mm -hmm. to say, you know what? I planned on not getting an epidural, but now I'm actually experiencing this whole labor thing and I'm changing my mind. That's okay. And yeah. no one's, no one should shame you for that. No one should, um, yeah, make you feel guilty or bad about that. Absolutely. Because they're not going through it. You're going through it. Right. Sometimes <laughs> patient will say to me, okay, Liz, I want you to pull out all the stops and do everything you can to help me not get intervention, mm. specifically pain medication or yeah. I don't, I don't want to have an epidural. I'm like, okay. Mm-hmm. I'm in 100%. But I'm not going to grab you by the shoulders and say, you and I had an agreement and you made me prompt. That's not, that's not my role. Yeah. My role is to assess and provide you with the information that you need. Now, I talk about this in class. I, I five minutes my patients a lot. It's like, can you do this for five more minutes? Mm -hmm. Because my motivation as a birth educator and as a labor nurse is to get you as far into labor as possible yes. because we know that the early intervention of epidurals will almost ultimately end up in more intervention, yep. such as breaking of the bag of water, oh, yeah. oxytocin. Uh -huh. Now we're in, you know, we are down the rabbit hole of intervention. Yep. So if I can get you one more centimeter or a little bit more active, yes. I'm all about it. Yes. Can you do this for 15 minutes? Well, I guess I can do one it One more contraction. Yeah. Let's just get in the shower. Mm -hmm. Let's get into forward leaning. Let's try this ball. Or let's get your partner over here to get into the counter. I'm going to show you. I just did this the other day. Amazing. Took a, a young nurse who was just getting trained with me to teach, you know, Simpkins hip squeeze and counter pressure. And it's like, we could get this mom mm -hmm. further into labor if she had the tools to be able to deal with it. Yeah. But there is going to be an ultimate period of time where I'm going to see that you're done. Right. Or you're going to say, okay, that's all really interesting. I want an epidural now. Yeah. Yeah. And I think yeah. you have a unique perspective being so experienced. You, you know what that look looks like I do in the mom I think in, so in the laboring person like mm -hmm. okay she's done we we made it yeah. those five more contractions those mm -hmm. 15 minutes more mm -hmm. and it's the peacefulness around it though yeah. we've talked about that early on in our podcast which seems like such a long time ago now doesn't mm -hmm. it that once you decide you need to take ownership of that decision. I've decided I'm okay with it. I'm not going to torture myself right. because I decided to have an epidural. Mm -hmm. Move on. And then, yes, there are ramifications and we have to deal with birth trauma and the trauma of our decisions mm -hmm. and what we wish we hadn't done. But there is a pivotal point in labor where 
you're going to press on or you need to have a nap. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, like, I've been up for three days. I the want an epidural. I'm going to so sleep nice. until you tell yes. me I am ready to push. Yeah. <laughs> Hey Liz, did you know that my business is called Preparented? I do. Because I want you to be 100% prepared for parenthood. I teach you classes about birth, breastfeeding, and newborn care. My specialty is helping you have an unmedicated natural birth in the hospital setting. Aren't you a lactation educator? Yeah, I'm a lactation consultant, an IBCLC. So I can go to your home if you're in Los Angeles to help you breastfeed your baby. For those of you not in Los Angeles, I also do virtual consults. We can get so much accomplished during a virtual consult. And then I have some a la carte items like a personalized pumping plan where if you're going back to work and you just need help figuring out how to pump and get a stash so that you can have enough milk to feed your baby when you're at work, I can help you navigate that whole process. I also have a text me anything membership for a month you can text me anything any questions you have while you're postpartum and you're figuring out that newborn life and you're exhausted and you just need a little extra mama support you can go to my website www.preparented.com or my instagram at preparented for funny videos featuring my family and also my silly face. You're on board with touched that. on this already, but tip number six is keep moving and change positions. Yeah. I think when you're stuck in bed, uh, then we're, we're not going to see the forward moving process of labor. Yeah. We're not going to see labor progress. Labor sometimes takes a lot of work on your part or your partner or your doula to say, okay, let's try this position or let's have you get up and walk. We can't, sometimes we can, we can wait for labor to just happen to you. Right. Um, but sometimes we've got to, we've got to help it along right. by changing positions, moving around. And, and that's also what's going to help you find a comfortable position. Right. Is just trying different positions yeah sometimes we're in all kinds of weird positions like right. what is she doing i'm like look she's comfortable mm-hmm. and she that's all i really care people she, say well what can i do people still ask that what can i do i'm like is, you can do whatever you want mm-hmm. as long as i can fulfill my obligation and the doctor's order to get a certain amount of monitoring yeah and a lot more doctors are becoming much more comfortable with intermittent fetal monitoring, which we love. love so that. thank you, all of you who say she can be off the monitor 40 minutes out of every hour, and we're all about it. Mm-hmm. And it's also, you can ask your labor nurse once you get to the hospital if you're admitted. I don't want to get in bed. I just want you to do your initial assessment. Standing if I up, need a half yeah. block, then generally I throw the covers back. I'm like, okay, you can get out of bed now. Mm-hmm. You don't have to and lay in bed now in early labor. Feel free to, you know, if you want to put your clothes back on, if you want to get your own shoes on and walk around the room and move around yeah. and, you know, feel free. I was but just going to say, it's like, that give that consciousness. lady some underwear. Yeah. Like, something that makes her feel secure Yeah, to walk around yeah. and feel like she put your yoga pants dignity. back on and a yeah. t-shirt and uh, have at it. Mm-hmm. 
And um, I love that. And I'm trying more and more to, it's like, you're admitted. Mm -hmm. Now, let's go over your birth plan. What do you want to do? I'm going to show you three basic things. Birth ball positions, forward leaning positions, um, some counter pressure. This is what I'm going to do for you. And this is the layout. Do you want something to eat? Do you need something to drink? And, you know, more and more doctors are getting much more comfortable with food. Yeah. Can I eat? I wish you would. Totally. Absolutely. You're not on Pitocin. You don't have an epidural. You're not specifically in the medical management of care. Mm -hmm. You need to eat and you need to, you need to drink. Yep. And I think if we could change the way we look at patients from the time they walk in and not make that room, no matter how much pretty art we put on the wall, we put them in a hospital gown and put them in a hospital bed and put an IV in their arm. They're in that sick consciousness. Right. It's like, I may put an IV in your arm, but I could cap it off yeah. and put something around it. Mm-hmm. Or you could be have your sweatshirt on that's cozy. Yeah. If you don't have IV fluid running or medication. Yes. Love that. Put and your comfy clothes back on. And, yes. Or just put a comfy bathrobe on and get up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Of course you need to have intermittent resting. You know, when I talk about circuit labor with my patients, yeah. I'm not here to make you run yourself into the ground. Right. I walked for four hours this morning. Yeah. I, don't you hear that all the time? We don't want you to be We exhausted. walked five miles. I'm like, why'd you walk five miles? <laughs> <laughs> that seems like a lot. Why 40 weeks pregnant. <laughs> I, I just need to sleep. I'm like, yeah, I bet you do. <laughs> exhausted. Okay. Tip number yeah. seven, take a class. We're always going to always going to recommend this because you'll learn the vocabulary of how the nurses and the doctors are going to be speaking around you. Right. And you're also going to learn about all of these interventions that are possibilities and how to make the decision if they're right for you. Right. Because there are going to be times when you say, you know what? I am okay with getting some Pitocin or I am okay with getting my water broken or I am okay with getting that epidural. Yeah. Um, or I've been in a very long latent phase mm-hmm. prodromal labor. I talk about this in class a lot. There is a time where oxytocin and an epidural can work for you. Yep. That three day labor, you're exhausted you're frustrated, mm-hmm. you know your cortisol levels are off the chart, your adrenaline is up, yeah. you are just spent. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's like, you know what, we need to just kind of nudge this patient into labor. And often, interestingly enough, those patients tend to go really quick. Yeah. Once they're relaxed, they get a little bit of sleep, mm-hmm. they get some fluid and whammo. So yeah. there is room for intervention. Mm-hmm. And But taking a class will help you wrap your mind around yeah. all of this and understand when it's appropriate and how to make yeah, how to make that decision. Absolutely. We talked about brain before. You're looking at the benefits, risks, alternatives, your intuition, and nothing or you need more time to Absolutely. think about it. Absolutely. I love and, that. Um, I, it's so funny yeah. when I talk about them. Everybody just looks at me like, you're – Advocating for an epidural, I'm like, we just spoke about a very specific period of yeah. time in the early phase. Yeah. Ask questions. What can you do to help me? What do I need? Yeah. And I love I love brain. Taking a class just builds your confidence that you know what you're doing. 
Yeah. You're not at the mercy of somebody else telling you you have to do something. Mm-hmm. And also just being in an unfamiliar environment like a hospital for most pregnant women, it's their first ever time being hospitalized. I hear that a lot. I was born in a hospital and that's the time I was and ever stepped foot in one. Yeah. Yeah. And so taking a class gets you familiar with what to expect for a hospital birth, at least for mine and Liz's classes. That's our specialty. That's what we talk about. Mm-hmm. And um, and helps ease your mind about what is all to come. Right. Because you have so much to think about as it is being a pregnant person. You're thinking about when your baby actually arrives and breastfeeding and caring for your newborn and you know what about going back to work three months later but taking a birth class yeah can take away all those anxieties about the actual labor day and the reality of what I I'm talking about, I'm identifying myself as a registered labor and delivery nurse, a registered nurse in L&D. What I'm capable of mm-hmm. and what I have time for. Yeah. And I know this is unpopular amongst hospital administrators. Don't like birth nurses to talk about this. But the truth is, I can't be the labor and delivery nurse that I was 15 years ago mm. because we don't have all the resources and our acuity, our high-risk population yeah. has increased exponentially. And I can't be in your room all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, our administrators want us to be less task-oriented and much more hands-on-oriented. This has actually been spoken about all over town, all over the country. But the truth of the matter is, is how hospital nursing is set up is, is tasks. Right. You have and tasks to do. Do- I have tasks to do <laughs> and I have documentation. Mm-hmm. And if that documentation and those tasks aren't done, then it actually impacts how the hospital can function yep. monetarily. Yep. Right. And so because often patients in our community has been fed this, we're going to treat you like you're in a hotel. Bill of goods. Mm. That's what the expectation is. But I'm here to tell you, you are not. You are in a hospital setting Mm -hmm. with professional nurses who have a multitude of tasks and documentation that has to be accomplished. So the more that you can learn Mm -hmm. when I come into a room, this happens to me every day. And a patient said, I didn't take any classes because my obstetrician just said it wasn't necessary. And then this person needs so much information. And that's something I do over four or five hours Mm -hmm. while I'm trying to take care of them in labor and ultimately pushing and birth and talk about positions and and the things that you need and and your antibiotics that you might need or your pregnancy-induced hypertension that you might have or your chronic hypertension or why I'm taking blood sugars because you're diabetic and the list goes on and on and Mm -hmm. on, that it is often still astonishing to me that people are willing to give up agency over their knowledge base Mm -hmm. of something as important as this time in their lives. Mm -hmm. I can't understand it. I would say it's a huge red flag if your obstetrician says, don't take a class. I have to agree. What? Why don't you want them to be educated? Why don't you want them to? I mean, we know, know the, the answer. evidence. We know the answer to that. Yeah. I, I mean, 
you know, I'm not, I'm talking about all of the country. All, mm-hmm. you know, that's all I know. People like to operate from a authoritarian point of view. And I'm a professional and you hired me to be your OB and you don't need to question me. Right. But you're just trust me. You're just going to trust me. And that doctor may see 40 patients a day mm-hmm. and have been up all night and done five deliveries or two deliveries or running back and forth to their office. The doctors don't have time to answer all of the questions that need to be asked. Yeah. So I often wonder, what do you get out of your patient not knowing? And what is threatening about your patient asking you, can you provide me evidence on why you wish to do A, B, and C? And why don't you want someone else to take that burden off your hands? Right. So you kind of give it up Mm. to... No, I I get it. Like some people are just like, I just don't want to know. I'm just better off. sailing through and for some people it really is Mm -hmm. you know that that Mm -hmm. patient is like I don't want to do just do whatever you want so um yeah we have biases about that Mm -hmm. I like I like uh I like to be able to have a conversation when the patient comes in already knowing some vernacular saves time yeah yeah totally it does so we can kind of get to other things yes like you know what counter pressure is in hip squeeze and i'm gonna i'm here to show you how to do it yeah you know you're gonna get an iv at some point if you go into active labor you're in a hospital setting let me let's just get it's this not done it's not a surprise why does this have thing. to happen right exactly it even saves time so we can get we to do important. do that even for people who take a class and you might forget some things yeah but it's easier to jog someone's memory mm-hmm. when they've Totally. Taking a class. 100%. Instead of teaching them from yeah. scratch. So many other things I want to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me review the seven tips that we talked about. So number one, set your mind to it. Be determined. Work on your mindset about this. Tip two, wait for spontaneous labor to begin. Tip three, stay at home as long as possible. Tip four, practice your pain management techniques. Five, be on the same page as your partner. Have agency over your body. Tip six, keep moving and change positions. And tip seven, take a class. Yeah. So, and you know what? You can take more than one. Yes, you can. Sometimes when I teach how to have a better hospital birth, I just recently went, had a couple of people say, I took hypnobirthing class too. And I'm like, awesome. Let's add to it. Let's add to it. Mm -hmm. Like you can layer this on how and take from whatever sounds interesting to you love hypnobirthing mm-hmm. can only help feel free yeah yeah awesome awesome we well, love that we always appreciate our listeners thank you for supporting the birth nurses and we hope this helps you yeah. as you're on your pregnancy journey or journey to labor and delivery We want you to be prepared. We want you to feel calm and have your anxieties and fears eased. So we're uh, we're open to hearing your feedback about all of this, too. Yeah, please do. Email us. Let us know your questions. We want to answer them in future episodes. I want to hear from people Mm -hmm. who have been discouraged by obstetricians. Yeah. um, About birth classes and what conversation you had. Yeah. That'd be great. Yep. Thanks, everybody. This was great. Bye, Shana. Bye.
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Birth Nurses Podcast. If you enjoyed this, there are a few ways you can support us. First, you can share this podcast with your pregnant friends or new moms. Secondly, you can write a review and rate us on iTunes. And thirdly, we would love if you would check out our Instagram accounts and websites. I'm on Instagram as Preparented and online www.preparented.com. And Liz is on Instagram as Birth Nurse Liz, and her website is birthandbeyond.net. Thanks for listening.